0: Hey, thanks so much for joining me, this is the Jazz Violin Podcast and today you're just listening to me, Matt Holborn. I'm doing a little year review, I haven't done this before, I think we've been going, this podcast has been going for like, let's say, three, four years, maybe 2018, however long that's been. Um, And I've never done a year, year review, you know, I've just, I've always stuck, I've always tried to keep it simple with this podcast. But this year, well, you know what's funny? I'll, I'll I'll be candid with you. Um I've been ill over this last uh, couple of weeks and haven't been able to record any interviews with anybody. So I thought it might be nice to just do a little a little recap of some of the um interviews that I've really enjoyed uh partaking in or listening to. Well, I guess I don't really listen to them. Apart from, well, no I do. This is nonsense. I'm talking nonsense already. I'm lying to you. I do listen to them because I uh I edit them often well I always edit them Here we are <clears throat> I am rambling already uh maybe I've still got brain fog from uh covid so that's the thing is I've had covid this last uh couple of weeks and it's I had it quite not bad bad and I uh, yeah it definitely didn't have it bad uh in the grand scheme of things. But I definitely was in bed. I couldn't I couldn't do anything for ages. I felt really ill. But it's gone now. It's uh, New Year's Eve right now. I'm in Southeast London. And I'm feeling fine. But yeah, I just haven't been able to get uh, any interviews sorted out. So here we are. I'm going to do this little year in review. I think that's what we'll call it. 2021. A year in review. I don't know. Well, I'd like to, um, first of all, just say thanks to all of you, you know, for um, for listening. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to everybody who has listened to, to this podcast, who's downloaded it, who have, you know, maybe even if you've become a patron, I'd like to say thank you very much to you. You are what keeps me going and you are what keeps the podcast going. So if you weren't here, this podcast wouldn't be here either. If you weren't listening to me, you weren't downloading it, Weren't sending me the messages saying, "Hey, I love the podcast." Blah blah blah. You know, then this podcast wouldn't happen. So, round of applause to you! Thanks so much for being there and being um, being my audience. Uh, I have I continue to learn a lot from this podcast, um, often about music, about improvising, about learning, um, learning music, but also about you know different parts of life and and it helps me think about what i want out of my own life sometimes because i get to because i speak to so many different interesting musicians who have uh, everyone has real different paths and that's what but, but that's one of the things that i get a lot out of you know is, is hearing yeah how people how people get to where they are and how people still strive to get to the next place that they want to be um Most of the people I interview uh, are people who are always looking forward and are striving for greatness at all times. And it's often completely different, um, you know, different areas of music or areas of jazz, even areas of jazz violin. But, you know, the thing that I find really enjoyable is the differences between all of these people. Yeah, and that's what's exciting for me. More of that later, but uh, for the time being, let's go straight into the first episode I actually did in uh, 2021, which was with Miguel Atwood Ferguson, which actually could be one of my favorite interviews I've ever done ever. So not even just this year, ever, because Miguel is such a interesting musician and person, and he's also a um just very eloquent much more eloquent than i am um he can talk for hours in great depth and w- with all the right words you know that that um bring you in and make you feel like you really know him and i think that that's really impressive you know i'm someone who I've been doing this podcast, self-appointed podcaster. You know, no one ever asked me to be a podcaster. No one ever said to me, "Hey, Matt, you know, you've got great words, man. Everyone, everyone should hear your words," because uh, you know I, that's not really my it's not really my forte. Talking is not really my forte. I don't think I'm the most eloquent person in the entire history of uh, <laughs> jazz violin. Um, but you know, I do this because uh, I wanted to hear interviews with with all these musicians but you know what I, what I what always I always get taken aback by is some of these musicians I speak to and they're so eloquent and they've got so much to say and Miguel was one of those and is one of those people Miguel is also you know he's a very inspirational character and a lot of the chat didn't didn't always focus around musical things or technical musical things um we spoke a lot about his spirituality and his um just his like feelings about staying happy and uh, positive and keeping a positive mindset and all that it's really interesting stuff because Miguel is a very interesting musician so here he is um talking about the etymology of the word improvise this was one of the things that I Really enjoyed hearing when I chatted to Miguel at the start of the year. Let's go. No.
1: Etymology is such a fascinating subject. I got into it a couple of years ago and it's something that I can't wait to study more. But improvisation, Matt, was just like one of it might take the cake. It might be the <sighs> one of the coolest words as far as etymology. So there's two kind of like root definitions. Uh that I find very interesting. One, my favorite one is to reveal the unseen. That's one of the when you go back as far as when I went when I went back as far as I could trace it, like to Latin and like the uh, I guess Improvisare might be right. the Italian. But at, when I went as far deep as I could um, tracing. it, Back to when it first started to become a concept and a word uh, in cultures um, to reveal the unseen. So when we translate something, I think we have to keep in mind that it has very different meanings in a different language yeah. because of all the, uh, the the things that are intimated from that culture, you know, words mean different things to different people for yeah. good reasons. And so, you know, I, I, I don't take this stuff too seriously. Um, and it's not entirely correct because of the translations. But other, the other one that I, I kind of finds interesting uh, is uh, root definition of improvisation is to improve upon the moment. Whoa... And that clearly seems like it's translated in so many different ways many times over. But that's an interesting, you know, concept. You know, some people might say, well, there's no need to improve upon the moment. We just, you know, need to surrender to, you know, the divine dignity of every moment, celebrate it, but... You know, I think I think you get the beauty of it, though. Also, yeah. and I think uh, your listeners will too.
2: Yeah.
0: So crazy. You know, really interesting stuff there. And um, you know, what's funny is I tried to Google some of this stuff, and it's really it's really hard to find out about etymology uh, via Google. You know, I, there was hints of things that um, that Miguel was talking about online, but I found it really hard to find. You know anything uh, anything more than just a hint. So, yeah, I was really happy that um, Miguel's done that research and looked into it in that way for us. So, yeah, there we go. That's one of the great things about podcasts. Um, So, yeah, let's let's move on. We're going to listen now to another really great interview that I really enjoyed uh, being a part of with Laura Risk talking about ginger smock. Ginger smock was a... um, was a violinist, jazz violinist, band leader and composer who was around in the 1940s um, and 50s uh, but never quite uh, you know, made it to the forefront of our minds or forefront of jazz violin history books. So Laura did some extensive research and wrote an article in Strings magazine about um, the life and career of Ginger Smock. So it was really interesting to hear from Laura about this, uh, you know, this unsung hero of jazz violin.
2: It's not about positioning women musicians as as somehow victims or help, you know, kind of helpless in a larger system. and that actually positioning positioning women like that is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time that this these article this article about Ginger Smock of um, you know, only talking about her childhood around the same time. You know, if you look at other articles about women musicians, women jazz players coming out in Downbeat, for instance, Le- Leonard Feather wrote a whole series. The way that the way that the women are kind of always portrayed is is, is as as like helpless in the face of sexism. Mm. Um. And when you look at Ginder Smock's story, it's like it's you know she had a lot of agency. She had a lot of control she was a band leader she was an arranger she was a composer she called the shots in a lot of her work and i think she was quite good at that yeah clearly i mean otherwise you don't keep getting hired yeah band leader but but the place where that she didn't have that control at that time was around recording Mm. because uh she could make the demos but that required like an A and R person then saying, No, yeah, we want to sign you to this label. You know, it, there's that, so that's that was a sort of an access, place of access that um was was not as open to her. I mean, she did make recordings for sure, yeah. but she also tells stories about um at the, you know, it kind of in some ways at the height of her. Her, her early career in the early fifties playing a gig, having an A&R rep come up to her and say, I love what you're doing. Send me, you know, make a demo. She makes the demo. He brings it back to RCA Victor and they say, that's amazing. Who's playing the violin. This story is an article. And, and um,
0: yeah, I saw that.
2: And then they, and and he says, Oh, this, well, so this is interesting because when she tells the story to John Reeves, she as she writes it to him, she says that the A&R rep says, it's a girl in San Francisco, and they say, "Oh, forget it. We have Joe Vanuti. Joe but when mm. she tells the same story to Sherry Tucker in an interview, she's she, then the A rep says, "It's a colored girl in San Francisco," mm. and then they say, "We have Vanuti. Right. So, um, so, so this is how, you know, th- I think th- those stories both come from later in life. That's her looking back on her career. I mean, that that telling of the story but I think this is how she understood that these kind of sort of turning points when you can, you're successful, but you can kind of break into the next level, which I think for her would, would have been through a recording. Yeah. um, Or through some more high profile gigs and those moments. um, She saw those moments over and over not being accessible to her. Um, and there's no question that, you know, when women were on stage at that time, it was partly about their bodies. As women on stage today, often it's still about their bodies, you know. So, um, but I guess I'm also, I also want to recognize that women musicians in the mid century were very aware of that. It's part of the job. Sure. They did, you know? Yeah. And, and Smock herself says that in a, in an interview, in the interview with Sherry Tucker, she says, you know, I had this, these publicity photos that made me look, what does she say? Positively vampish. But that was just part of the job. That's what it's like. She's very practical about it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, that sort of the way gender and race and age intersect, the way gender and race shape, you know, sort of what opportunities are available Mm -hmm. changes with age. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's too simplistic. I don't know if I'd say it exactly like that. I think I might just say that, that, you know, um, in a musical career, especially the time that Ginger Smock was working, which was the 1940s through the seventies, eighties, um, the body that you're in shapes, to some extent, the yeah. opportunities that you have. It's not just how you play. Yeah. Um, and the way, and that, and an older woman's body is, um, as a society, you know, we put different meaning on that than an older man's body.
0: So another. Um... Another interview that I really, really enjoyed um, doing was with Martin Taylor. So Martin Taylor used to play guitar with Stefan Grappelli. He toured with Grappelli for years. And it was, a, you know, it's been interviewing Martin has been something that I've been wanting to do for ages. Because, you know, I, I quite like doing these episodes where I talk to people about some of the, you know, like a bit like talking to Laura about um ginger smock is you know it's focusing on the history a little bit and focusing on some of the musicians that have come before um before us um you know and hear in hearing firsthand uh you know what it was like to play with them or to know them and yeah so martin had first-hand experience playing um extensively with Grappelli, recorded some albums with him and all that so it's great to chat to him and just hear his stories so these stories um uh uh you know, we can dine out on these stories forever now. You know, I, I Grappelli you can just tell when you see Grappelli play that Grappelli was was a real um was a real personality and I think it's really exciting when you get to hear yeah, first hand um accounts of Grappelli and his personality, you know, the, the man behind the music. Um yeah, so here is Martin chatting about Grappelli. Um what was Stefan like as a band leader? <laughs> Very easy. If he liked
3: your playing, and that's the only, it, the only way you got to work with Stefan is if he liked your playing and he liked you as a person, mm. and you had to have those two things going. It didn't matter how great somebody played; if he didn't like you, uh, he he didn't really want to hang out with you. So you had to be somebody that he was he felt comfortable with, and he liked the way you played and it was sympathetic to to what he was doing uh, as well so i was fortunate that Stefan liked me and he liked my playing and he didn't want me to play any other way yeah so he never ever told me what to play sometimes he'd make suggestions uh, about something so you know at the end of that solo why don't you do a big chordal uh, you know um chromatic thing up to the top so it'd be really dramatic you'll get lots of applause <laughs> you things like that. but a, a lot of arrangements we did those amongst us i, you know, I came up with uh, ideas for arrangements so that we weren't just um playing the same tunes over and over again we were coming up with nice ideas to make them interesting um when i first worked with Stefan, there was Um, it was myself and French guitar player, Marc Fosse Hmm. and left-handed guitar player sadly passed away last year. And between us, we came up with arrangements. Mark had great ideas and he was, his playing was very sympathetic with Stefan's after a while we started to share the gig and it became a one gig, one guitar uh, gig. Yeah. So playing with Stefan as a band leader, there were certain things you, you had to be very professional And the way you presented yourself on stage had to be, uh, in a certain way. I'm still like it. I'm still, you know. I I know I couldn't imagine just walking on the stage and ignoring the audience. I walk on stage, and first thing I do is acknowledge the audience and give everyone a smile and a little bow and uh, just kind of make that connection. And he knew he knew exactly what he wanted and. What was important to him was connecting with the audience, and he was the first jazz musician that I'd worked with that really um, concentrated on that. He would sometimes not play something because he thought, "I don't think the audience will like that." You know, whether I liked it or he liked it wasn't uh, uh, wasn't the thing. It was it was about the audience. So he had this wonderful way of projecting. And communicating with his music. And he liked things to be the same as well. So a lot of the things that we played that sounded improvised sometimes were quite worked out and and a little complicated, but they were worked out. I would have to give him little cues every so often because he was always afraid of um, losing his place. And yeah. you know, thinking, Oh, is Am I playing the second chorus or is this the third chorus? Or, so, I had little cues that I would give him. So we come to the end of of one chorus, and if I ba ba da, ba 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 then he knew he had one more to go. Uh, but there were special little cues that we had, and and if I missed one, he didn't like it. <laughs> oh, you, you missed it! You missed it! I uh, I became very distracted when you when you did that. <laughs> Yeah, but he wasn't—he uh, wasn't someone to tell you what to what to do and how to play. I remember once, actually, I we were playing. We didn't play a lot of uh, the hot club music. We we played all you know, jazz standards, Great American Songbook. But we were playing one of the Reinhardt Grappelli tunes, and it could have been something like Swing Forty Two or something. And it was just me and the bass player. It was just one guitar by that time. And Stefan started really going for it, and I went into more of uh, uh, Le Pompe style of of uh, of, of uh, accompanying of rhythm, because normally my my style is more kind of American style, and um, I could see him getting agitated. He said, "Oh, don't have that heavy four in a bar, you know. I like it to be be softer, because his his playing had." If you listen to those early records with with Django, the Hot Club, I mean, Stefan was such a strong swinging player. I mean, he always was. He continued to be. <clears throat> but what he wasn't at that time was the virtuoso that he became later on. And even in the time that I worked with Stefan from 1979 to 1990, I heard, him, I heard him getting better, better and better. It's quite amazing. Somebody in their eighties, you know, and uh, just improving all, all, all the time. Not just getting more virtuosic in their playing, but the way he played, his tone, his, his sound was just uh, just quite amazing, and uh, just the way, just that that beautiful lyric way that lyricism in his playing was was quite amazing. Nobody, nobody liked him.
2: Hmm.
3: I, lo- I liked it sometimes when we played with, we'd sometimes do things with orchestras. We did a few with um, Michel Legrand where he conducted the orchestras. And, and also I played on some of the Yehudi Menuhin recordings as well that were recorded at Abbey Road. And you'd go in there and there'd be an orchestra <clears throat> and all, all the violin players in the orchestras would all stand up as soon as he walked in the room it was quite amazing and they'd tapped the bows and, and everything and hmm. they were absolutely in awe of him and at the end of every take you could see they'd all like tap their bows on the on the stands and sort of looking over to him bravo maestro hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: why do you reckon he got better through age what why, what is it about Stefan and his playing that that made that happen do you think
3: I think he was enjoying life. He was enjoying the life that he had. <clears throat> he was well looked after. He was surrounded by a small group of people that were very, uh protective and loving towards him. Um, he had an audience all over the world that loved him. Uh, he liked to eat three big meals a day. <laughs> and, uh, have some wine in the evening and uh, he'd have a, a, a couple of glasses of whiskey <laughs> in the evening before we went on stage. And I just think he, in, he was enjoying life so much. And when you think, if you go back, we don't have time to go into it, but um, he had an absolutely horrendous childhood. He, he, he was brought up in an orphanage. His mother died when he was six. He was brought up in two orphanages. His father went off to the First World War. Uh, he lived in real poverty, and that never left him. The thought of that never left him. And I, I think that he, he had gratitude for the life he had and, and for the music and the being, being able to do that. And I, I really think, I think that's really what it was. It was it just like he, it was always there, but it, it just it was like a flower blossoming. Just opening up it it was wonderful even after I worked with him I met him the very last time I saw Stefan was in Sydney Australia he was on tour with the the trio we had at the time and I was on a solo tour and we were staying in the same hotel and we we sat down and and we, we chatted for a while but I heard some some recordings of him recording at that at that time and it was it was phenomenal it was just yeah. so wonderful because he was enjoying life. I, th- I think that's mm. the only thing I can put it down to.
0: Hmm. That's something to take away, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a musician, you got to try and enjoy life. I mean, maybe, you know, it's, uh, everyone's got different circumstances, but it's, you, th- you think it would be his, his, his temperament and his, uh, and, and his life around him that made him better rather than anything technical,
3: no, I think that was already there. I yeah. think that was there. It was just kind of, kind of uh, blossoming, really.
0: Mm. And last but not least, it was an absolute pleasure to chat with Tracy Silverman because Tracy Silverman. I, I mean, I said this at the start of this episode. Um, Tracy, I remember. I think might have been one of the first violinists I heard when I was trying to get into playing jazz. And I, Tracy isn't exactly a jazz violinist, you know, if, or he's not just a jazz violinist. Tracy does a lot of other things. Um, great classical player. And also, you know, his main thing is, is focusing on groove and how violinists can groove. You know, he's really, he's sort of one of the, one of these uh, people in America, because they are all in America, that are really focused around groove based string playing and he was such a such a yeah such an interesting musician to talk to but yeah i remember listening to like i said i did say it at, at the start of the this episode but yeah, you know you don't mind listening again i first heard tracy in playing over like a 2001 uh recording of jeff coffin who i got really into because when i was first getting into playing jazz um i got really into bela fleck bela fleck and the fleck tones that was my one of my first forays into you know like getting like getting into jazz listening to improvised music because I, I mean I guess he's not really jazz he's improvised music to some degree anyway but Bela Flex and the Flicktones I went to see them in in uh, I saw them in Glasgow at the uh, Celtic Connections Festival yeah and um, Jeff Coffin is in Bela Flex band so then I started to, I got really into Jeff Coffin Started to download because it was when we were downloading MP3s. Started to download all of his albums. And uh, yeah, and then I found, I heard this amazing solo by Tracy on one of his albums. And yeah, anyway, just, so it's just really interesting. Uh, one of the great things about running this podcast is getting to talk to all of these musicians um, that have filled up my influences in different ways throughout the years and it's really nice to to get to chat to all these musicians it's um it's uh yeah i feel very
2: blessed uh
0: to be able to do that so it's great to chat to tracy here here we're going to chat about um you know how how strings can um you know become more uh can end up in the forefront of uh popular music and popular culture a little bit more so here we go
4: tracy Strings got into this arrested development in the 20th century where it's only looking backwards, only recreating music of the past, unless it's fiddly stuff. That's about the only thing that's kind of folk music, you know, or that's that's part of the current vernacular. And I think it's a huge, um, that strings have so much to offer in the current popular genres. And it's... And it's our responsibility as creative musicians to represent our time and to include strings in that representation. Um, And if we don't start doing it soon, I I think they're going to get so endangered that it's really on the verge of becoming extinct at some point.
0: Yes. And what do we do to make that happen?
4: So here's my theory. All right. Here's my theory is that the future of strings I keep talking about the future of strings mm-hmm. I think the future of strings is going to start um, taking place coalescing in the recording studios of pop records okay like the producers who are working with the Drake's and the you know uh, bigger names uh, in the in the pop world beyonce and Everybody, you know, from the rappers to the pop singers, hip-hop is, you know, is the genre that drives most American pop music. Um, and those producers who are who are putting those tracks together need to start putting strings on those tracks. We, in other words, we need string players to get into those studios to play strings in a way that is relevant to the music. That's all there is to it. We got to get on the records. If we're not on the records, we ain't going to be in the in the history books, you know, or we're going to be just known as an extinct instrument in the history books. In order to be a part of 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 our culture as string players, we need to get on the records because that's where the culture is happening. And then of course, on the concert stages, but to get in the studio and and to play music that's relevant to those records that it's going to be very similar to a guitar, but a little different. So
0: this is where yeah, this is where we get to the point. You're not talking about we need to have a load of we need to have a string section playing classical music over pop music. What you're no. talking about is exactly. we need to be part of the band as a as a solo yeah.
4: string player or as a sort of maybe I don't know about that, but just like a guitar, there are two functions that we can do very well. Um, lead and rhythm and they're two very different things sometimes
0: you know definitely
4: um, they kind of go to two opposites of the spectrum yeah. one is melodic and basically vocal in nature in which case the instruments need to sound like the other melodic instruments of the genre so if you're hip hop you're going to be sounding like a vocalist or sounding like a horn like a electric guitar or a horn or a synth or whatever is playing a melodic line okay. you have to in some way fit in yeah. to that. And the other way is rhythmically playing grooves, doing what a guitar does, doing what a keyboard does, doing what synth pro, you know, productions mm. do, um, making sense on the record in any way that you can. And there are all kinds of creative ways violin strings can function that way as great rhythm instruments, chordal instruments, especially when you have six strings yeah. on the on a violin. And it really functions very much like a guitar. This is why I have this whole strumboing thing. It's it's basically because it it's, it's modeling out of, you know, one of the main instruments in our pop music culture, which is the guitar. Yeah. We're closest to that than we are to a keyboard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's quite interesting listening to you talking. Before we talk, actually, a bit more... Uh, Um, sort of technically about that the the stuff that you're talking about it's just quite interesting if you ever you ever read about like third stream something I've been reading Mm -hmm. about a while like recently Gunther Schuller talking about third stream being basically this intersectional place where classical meets jazz at the time when Gunther Schuller was writing jazz was sort of more like popular music than, than it is now, but it was still it was still it was like around but i remember if you read if you read about his thing if you read about what he thought the third stream should be or could be you know he he was very clear it was like the third stream it's it's not jazz with strings and it's not so and it's not classical mu- musicians playing I can't remember what it wasn't there's this really interesting little bit of like what it is and what it isn't, but the main thing that stuck stuck you know stuck with me in. Makes me think about what you're thinking about now. Is that it's not we're not talking about jazz with strings. We're not talking about Charlie Parker with strings. And that's not what you're talking about. Right. You're not talking about. No, not at all. uh, You're talking about us being relevant and actually making a basically making a place for ourselves in popular music rather than sort of
4: exactly creating a new place because there really isn't Mm -hmm. one. You know what? What we're going to be doing is kind of modeling on the guitar, which has less of a place than it used to also, True. for sure. But um, but the idea of a string section where strings are kind of used as this kind of production element, a sort of an- anachronistic throwback to a symphonic yeah. past in which we can put this big um, cinematic, um, you know, or... You know, uh, in the case of Motown, a sort of groovier version of that string, but nevertheless a kind of a groovy orchestra playing in the background. But what I'm talking about is not that. I'm talking about more single instruments, not not a string section, but a violin player who basically is replacing the guitar player in a band.
0: And it's also, I'm, am I, I'm, I'm reading between the lines, but it's also not a classical musician who has a. Who has a uh, uh, an electric violin and who plays pop songs on in a classical way? It's not that, is it?
4: Exactly, exactly. Thank you for bringing up that distinction, uh, because this is certainly if um, if you're like me and you uh, follow hashtags on Instagram like electric violin, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you will see that there are hundreds of people with electric violins and cool outfits um, playing pop songs uh, with a lot of vibrato and in a basically classical way. Now, I'm just writing a blog about this for this new uh, music magazine called Inside Cool Music Magazine. Uh, I've got a monthly column in there now. And I'm writing uh, uh, the next. Uh, blog is about uh, the difference, like the differences, different rules for different schools, like difference between classical and popular mm-hmm. styles. Uh, and I address vibrato. I have, and this is, it's, uh, you know, I start off with a disclaimer, like this is very subjective. Everybody's got an opinion about vibrato. So here's mine, you know, (laughs) so, um, you know, if anybody's interested, uh, I just, you know, I just kind of feel like a a classical vibrato is ridiculous in a pop song. It's just Mm. you should play like the other instruments in the pop song play or like the singer sings. And if they're not singing with vibrato... And this rap song, why would you play with vibrato on that rap song? Especially if you're playing the melody, you should be trying to sound like the singer. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's uh, You know, it's just to me, it's inappropriate. Your, Your vibrato is like an accent. And it's like if you're from New York and you've got a New York accent and suddenly you're playing a part where you're supposed to be from Spain, you know, Barcelona, and you're speaking with a New York accent, well, then you're not doing a very good job of fooling the... Listener into thinking that you're Spanish, so you know if you're a classical player and you're trying to play a pop song and you're just giving away you're like I'm gonna just play this Spanish role with a New York accent because that's my artistic choice yeah, okay
0: so there we go, four little excerpts there of the last year I'm not saying the best of they're not the best of, but you know a little year in review for everybody um uh you know you can check out the full versions of these episodes via well you know where just all the places the place that you're listening to it right now you just go down the list and see their names you'll be able to see it um yeah i know that some of you guys listen i think quite a lot of you guys listen on spotify which is quite interesting is it interesting no it's not that interesting especially not for you guys um i wish that i was better at knowing what to do with that information that I have there you know I'm not I'm not the best at promotion or thinking about things in that businessy sort of way I just do things and they happen and some of them go well some of the things go well some of them don't and uh, you know that's that's how I live my life <sighs> here we are again I'm talking rubbish and you guys are listening to it it's been a pleasure chatting at you guys. Um thanks so much as a, again for being with me this last year listening. We've got another year to come. I'm excited. I've had like a yeah, I've uh, I've got some I've got another year to come of exciting interviews, exciting jazz violin content. Um as always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so via Patreon. Just uh follow the the links in the little bio thing, not bio, follow the links in the bio, no, follow the links in the description of this podcast or go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Holborn. You'll be able to find ways to um, yeah, get involved, uh, donate to me in the podcast or get involved in my jazz violin practice club. Um, you hear me talk about this a lot, so I'm not going to go on too much. I'm just going to say happy new year and hope you have a great, night tonight, i've had my gig cancelled i was supposed to be playing a gig a private gig um and it got cancelled not because of restrictions because we don't have any restrictions here but because of staff shortages you know staff shortages everyone's getting covid just like i had covered you know they're all getting the covid um and i live i live in london so at this t- at this point london's pretty covidy um uh, so, yeah, it, it, I I understand. But it's a bit annoying because I, I sort of, I want it to be out playing. I like playing New Year's Eve. It's fun and get paid. Anyway, enough of that. Thanks so much. Um, hope you have a great new year and, uh, you know, and you stay safe.
4: Bye.